Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for being here today. Great to see you all. You're in for a treat. You are definitely in for a treat today with um, the great Rabbi Chaim Seilefeller, who is a faculty member at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. He recently celebrated 40 years working with students and faculty as the executive director of the Yitzchak Rabin Hillel Center for Jewish Life at UCLA Hillel, uh, where he is now director emeritus. I had the great, um, the great salute, the great merit to um, work with and for uh, Rabbi Chaim at UCLA Hillel uh, a decade ago. Um, and so, uh, and uh, he is just a walking Torah full of, of heart and mind. Chaim was ordained at Yeshiva University where he completed a master's in rabbinic literature. He's been a lecturer in the departments of sociology and Near Eastern religion, uh, languages and cultures at UCLA and in the Department of Theological Studies at Loyola Marymount University. He's a faculty member of the Wexner Heritage Foundation. Rav Chaim is the, was the founding director of the Hartman Fellowship for Hillel Professionals and a founding member of Americans for Peace Now. Chaim was a rabbinic consultant to Barbara Streisand during the making of the film Yentl. And uh, he and his wife, Dr. Doreen Seidlerfeller, a clinical psychologist, are the parents of two children. Today, we're going to talk about the God of possibilities. And this is, um, this is wonderful because Rav Chaim is one of the great theologians alive today. And it's a gr great opportunity to welcome you back. Uh, you've been no stranger. We've had you many times at VBM, and we're glad you're back. Thank you. Can you can you hear me? Yeah, you can hear me. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I want to thank Rip Shmuley and uh, for his words, his, his praise, uh, and and just so that everybody understands, uh, Rip Shmuley said that he worked with me, uh, uh, but he also said for me. He didn't work for me. And when 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 Shmuley is present, not only do we work together, but he he leads he leads us. So I really want to I want, really want to bless this activity. It, 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 is a, it is exactly the nature of what learning should be because Talmud Torah belima aseh, that is intellectual activity without action is, is, is empty. It, 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 it's intellectual, but the, 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 the product is the change, the transformation that it brings, that it brings into the world. And I, I, also, I think that it's, it's a very serious question to, in, in terms of my presentation because I feel very strongly that theology the, and the nature of God is, is something that actually has a practical impact and a translation into how we lead our lives. I hope that that becomes apparent in the presentation. But first, I want to just make you aware of the fact that there is a, 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 a Christian journalist uh, whose name is, I'm forgetting his first name, um, his uh, surname is Merritt. Um, and he wrote a book about talking about God. He came from the South to New York City, and he noticed that there's an absence of any reference of people's referring to God as a type of, uh, of embarrassment. In, in part, it, it's the product of what I see in our time, a type of intellectual war against God. Some of you are familiar um, with Richard Dawkins, with Christopher Hitchens, um, with uh, Ben uh, Harris, um, and so yeah, there's a one for, there's a fourth uh, person uh, uh, that we I used to call them the four horsemen who 
who, who argued against the notion of God and talked about how God is damaging. I think what that that has that has really hurt the uh, the the entire conversation. Moreover, liberal society has moved us into a secularism that imagines that uh, that liberalism without without God is something that is beneficial and that uh, God and religion actually damage uh, a, a liberal outlook. I, and maybe that's a question that some of you um, uh, want to raise. I think that there's a, the consequence of that is emptying the playing field and in terms of religion, allowing the extremists to promote religion and the antagonists to promote an antagonism to religion. So we need, we need, to, we need to chart a middle road, an intellectual road that embraces God. And Merritt's work raises the following question. He noted an article that did a search in the last in the last century of words of compassion and care in, 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 in public, in, in journalistic, in, in, news, in, in, in the media, um, and, in, and in journals. And he noted a decline in the use of specific terms that have to do with caring for others, that have to do with respect for others. And there's a, there might be, I mean, we can say this, that we, can, we can actually say this, there is a correlation between a decline in talking about God and a decline in our moral concern for others. Um, and that, that's really important. Now, is there a causal relationship? I am unable to establish that. And do I believe that one can be moral and, uh, and one can be a good person without religion? Absolutely. But I, what I wanted, but I want to promote the idea that our religious tradition has as its main concern relationship, how we look at others. Remember, and we're going to come back to this, that the innovation in the creation chapter in Genesis, which doesn't appear in any other ancient literature, classical literature, is that God created human beings in the image of God. There's a sort of an automatic sense of the importance of the human being. And then in chapter two, God, the, the creation of a, of a pair of human beings because community and concern for the other is essential in establishing this world. So one of the, so the principle, if we, if, we, if we think about it, creation was introduced into the book of Genesis in order to teach us the value of humanity and the value of relationship. And so we have to hold on to that. So, so that becomes a center of religious activity. And what we do then in terms of observance, we should think about it, that it leads us, it always is leading us in the direction of how to be a better human being and how to be more, uh, and, and how to improve our relationships with one another and, uh, and our sense of responsibility in this world. All right, that's, that, that, that I think is important. Now, not only has uh, there been a decline in absence in the use of, of God language in general society, but particularly among Jews. And I just want to make a brief comment because I really have to get to the substance. And I want you to think about this. Why are Jews so uneasy? Uh, why is it not acceptable for to someone ask you, how are you? That you would say, Baruch Hashem, thank God, I'm okay. It, you know, that, 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 that conversation doesn't take place. So that use of terminology rarely takes place except in certain, in certain circles. So um, number one, um, we have a tradition that has emphasized action, you know, just what I said before, but uh, 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 Torah and mitzvot 
that the study of Torah and observance have been stressed as the distinctive qualities of Judaism. That's what distinguishes Judaism from other traditions. So Christianity went ahead and said, we're about love and they're about law, all right? So the, in, in many ways, we, we've internalized that in terms of emphasizing what's special about Judaism. What's special about Judaism is the code and the observance and the study. Intellectualism has, is sort of that which is prized uh, in study circles, number one. Uh, number two, our teachers, that is in my generation, this has changed somewhat, but my generation of teachers that is, and, my, and my generation of rabbis had teachers uh, who, who, who were impaired. They didn't share with their students uh, the sense of their spiritual quest. They didn't open their hearts. They didn't share their struggles. Believe it or not, I mean, if there only there are only few of them who shared who shared their struggles. Rabbi Soloveitchik, Abraham, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and think about it, they were the one, and and Mordechai Kaplan, right? Those three, and of course, in contemporary times, David Hartman and 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 and, and, and Rabbi Greenberg or Yitz Greenberg. I mean, they opened their hearts to uh, and exposed themselves and invited you in to to talk about what it means uh, to think about that which is beyond and to think about the value of uh, 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 one's, one's, one's inner value um, and also to think about the quest. So we didn't have a tradition of education that opened people up. But there was a much more, again, this, this, this continues with my first point, there was much more emphasis on producing scholars rather than religious personalities. Right? So that, that has hurt us in terms of our, our community, in terms of the religiosity of our community. Where would you go, for instance, would you go into a synagogue, a big synagogue, and, and with the sense that that's where you're going to find or you're going to establish some spiritual relationship? Is that, what, is that what's achieved? There's community is achieved. I think that that's true. Now, two more points that have to do specifically with Jewish life. And one is the stress on material success in Judaism has enormous cost, and we don't talk about it. Because uh, we're successful, you know, uh, and I always give uh, the example that uh, uh, in, in, uh, in Barbara Streisand's film, I think it's the, the, the mirror has two faces. She says uh, that the one th that her mother taught her one thing, one Jewish thing, and that was to shop uh, at, uh, what was it? To shop at Berghoff Goodman on Shabbos. That was uh, to go to go for the sales. In fact, the Yiddish papers used to, in the early part of the 20th century, used to carry uh, advertisements uh, for um, special Shabbos sales. So sales and purchasing of material goods replaced shul and prayer. Right? So that's number one. And number two, and that's something we struggle with, the overwhelming dominance of nationalism in terms of Jewish identity. And that has... That, that, and, and that moves us in the realm of power away from the sense of our personal relationship with God. In fact, it pushes God out. So there are, there are elements in Jewish life that actually militate against our developing and this spiritual life. And in fact, there's been a reaction with the Jewish spiritual um, um, association that is extremely important. Um, and more and more people are interested in studying Hasidut. Uh, in order to enter into some work, to, 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 to gain some language and gain some contact with the, those who think about these questions. The first, last, last point of introduction, the first time in this study session at, um, that I felt that the material that we were learning was talking about the meaning of God and prayer 
was when uh, Rabbi Arthur Green taught me some Hasidic text. And I come from a, I came from a Hasidic home, and no one ever told me what that's all about. Okay, and my grandfather was a Hasid. You know, so that that we we have the we have the 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 sources. We need to open ourselves up to them. We need to find them. They're available and they're being translated. All right. Now to our sub to the subject at hand. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen. So give me a moment because I have to. Uh, I, I must check out for a second. Rav Chaim, while you're doing that, is there a third factor? Um, the the two main factors I heard you say of Jews moving from God. What the one was this um, this kind of materialism, um, this you yeah. know being a consumer, and the second was nationalism. Was there a third main yeah. factor you shared? No, uh, well, okay. only the only what I said before that. Maybe you you have Rapshmuli Mata I mean, is there another is there another factor? No, I that you think. I I I wonder if there's something about kind of a response to Christian God language that Jews want to different differentiate from. Yeah. For sure, for sure, for sure, and, and and you know what's his name? You know, Art Green also wrote an article about the Shina um, and and the rise of 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 Zoharic concern with the Shina as a type of response to Mariology in Christianity. You know, and and Shir Hashirim. Uh, you know, it was the the, the 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 material is there, and the tension. The, the interesting thing is to look at Judaism as presenting a variety of approaches and to see the, the clash sometimes between those approaches as something that's enriching or something that we have to really, that we have to grapple with. It's not, it's not something that's easily, that's, that we need to resolve. We can live, we can live understanding that there are, there are multiple ways of approaching and that we need to be open and maybe they should influence one another. That's what I would say. The intellectual needs to be influenced by the spiritual, and the spiritualist by the intellectual, and the and action has to bring them together. All right. Now, let, what I want to do here is is present um, through the eyes of a number of texts. This, to me, was a was a a a a, a, a revelation. This this text. Um, it, it's it's written by a modern Bible scholar. His name was Arnold Ehrlich. I. I, I simply, I, I was taken uh, sort of intrigued by his Hebrew name, Shabtai ben Yom Tov, or fine, Ibn Bodeid. Now, Ibn ben Bodeid means the, the lonely one, the lonely one. So he was a professor at Hebrew Union College and he wrote a three-volume commentary, Mikra Kepshito, uh, on, on the Tanakh, on the Bible. Uh, he also wrote a German um, introduction or German uh, uh, critical work about uh, biblical studies, and he and he also he was interested in etymologies, not all of which are correct, but he had some wonderful ideas and insights. So let's read along here in this passage. I think you can all see it. It, as I said, it comes from uh, uh, Mikra Kipshuto and is a commentary to Exodus when Moses confronts uh, or is confronted by God um, at the bush. And 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 uh, I'm sorry. When when Moses uh, it, 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 Moses appeals to God for forgiveness for the people of Israel um, after the golden calf, and God says, "You can only see my back." But Moses Moses' request was to see God, to know to know God. So this is what um, uh, the, uh, God responds: "Panai lo you can't see my face. You can only see my back." So Ehrlich writes the following. If these words have a hidden meaning, I know it not. 
since I have not apprehended God's secrets. In other words, Ehrlich is announcing, I'm not a mystic. I don't, ha- I don't see this as a mystical encounter. I don't know what this means. What, is, what could it be? What I see in them is reflected in the words of a German sage who wrote, if I was standing before God and truth was held in God's right hand and the search for truth in God's left and God said, choose one of them, then I would choose the search for the truth. Now, the German sage was Lessing. He's a German philosopher uh, uh, whom Mendelssohn uh, knew. Uh, and um, uh, and this, this, present, this sort of wager that he presents, uh, I'm, I'm, I wonder if in sessions here, people who are learning can respond, because I'm interested in, in hearing what you might think it means. Why would he choose the search for truth rather than truth? Doesn't he want to know God? Isn't that the, the ultimate quest? Isn't that what we want to achieve? Wouldn't that be, you know, the, the summum bonum, the, the, the height, uh, the fight, you know, uh, the finale? What, 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 what's wrong with, with pursuing uh, that as a goal? Um, uh, Alex, can we, can we open up for responses from the participants if they want to? But they may have something to tell us. Yeah, sure. Uh, anyone can feel free to unmute and jump in or write something in the chat. Okay, so if we actually get an end goal of, you know, like saying, okay, now I've got God, now I'm there, I've got the truth, everything's fine, then what's the point of, there's nothing, there's nothing else to do after that. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So uh, now, I mean, uh, let let me put it a little bit in terms of, uh, in, 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 in theological terms. If you get to the point of knowing God, you're no longer human, because no human can know God. I mean, that, that's sort of on, on that level. But what you say is so important. Uh, uh, how do you pronounce your name? Aglaya. Uh, Aglaya. 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 Okay. What, what does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, it's actually radiance in Greek. So. <laughs> well, okay. It's, 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 it's wonderful. All right. Well, you're radiating a bit, I must say. Thank you. So, but, but, but I want you, but you understand the, the goal of, it's so interesting. We had to get out of the Garden of Eden. Humans couldn't have lived in the Garden of Eden because we cannot live as humans in perfection. We need to live in a world that requires our perfecting the world because in the perfection of the world, we also improve ourselves. We improve what exists in that process if we see the absence as a challenge to us. So this promotes and uh, what, what, Les, what Lessing is saying, if you had the truth, there would be no growth. There would be no human community. There, there, wouldn't, be, there wouldn't be any, there would be no achievement in, in the world. And, and we would imagine at that point, it's all over. I think what you said is right. Then it's all over. Why are we, why are we here? All right, let's continue. And, uh, maybe someone else, does anybody else have something to add, perhaps? Okay. okay. Now, by the way, one of... Uh, another, um, uh, another, uh, I think, uh, consequence of our having, uh, if we ha- have, if we have the truth, uh, is that we're held by that truth in such a way that there's no longer any freedom for us to choose. Right? Part of, part of, let me let me put it sort of crudely. Part of the excitement of life is the ability we have to choose and the challenge that we have to do the right thing. That the moral dilemmas that we face constantly and the decisions that we have to make, that allows our humanity to develop. And that's exactly what, you know, 
what 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 the what that whole creation process was, that was presented in the Torah, what was intended to bring to us. So um, our Erla continues. A similar teaching is articulated in the Mishnah. Better one period of teshuva and good deeds in this world than all of life in the world to come. In other words, again, better the life of imperfection in this world than all of life in the world to come where you are. Uh, you, uh, I don't know, you, you, you're sitting and in, 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 in amidst the radiance with no possibility of uh, any uh, act, action that's going to push to any development in any way. You're there, you're there. When you're there, and, and what it introduces, by the way, this notion of achieving uh, um, the, the olam haba is a sense of complacency. That's what you were talking about. Uh, I, I know, you know, it's, I've done it already. They taught this because one who arrives at the truth and attains eternity rests from his or her toil since he or she has arrived at his or her destination. But one who strives towards something lofty and exalted, his or her effort is more rewarding than the reward itself. And yet, the, so the, the goal, the, the, perp, the purpose is the process, not getting there. And always, and, and, and what the challenge here is, uh, and it's a difficult one, knowing that we're on the road and on this journey all the time. That's, I think that some people, some people want to rest. Yeah, and that's, that's also something we need to discuss. You know, we're, we're, you know, we're humans, we're humans, and we can't always live with a tension of pushing forward and, and, mo and moving, absolutely. But nevertheless, it's important for us to know and feel it's, there's more to do. In other words, we need to keep that agenda alive and not push it aside and imagine that we've, that we've arrived. Right? That's, I think Ehrlich says it. And, and let me add, it, it means that we have to develop a capacity to live creatively with uncertainty. Not, you know, right? because contingency is the nature of life. We just don't know. We just don't know, right? So, and, and, it, and that means, by the way, since we can't know ultimacy, it means we'll always be searching to get to that point where we get ever closer to knowing. It means that the search for knowledge continues endlessly. I, I actually believe I'm, you know, I'm I'm a little bit prejudiced, but I think that what I what I've learned religiously has motivated me as a learner in the world because I understand since in religion the ultimate knowledge can never be attained, and we're always in pursuit of that ultimate knowledge. That that's a key to understanding the pursuit of knowledge in all fields because you can't know for sure in this world. You can only get close, approximate, and uh, asymptotically close to that point, to that point in all, in all fields. You know, so this idea that someone is a master, there's always something new, that science is definite and determined and precise. There's always some correction that needs to be made. It's healthy. This is, this is amazing, an amazing outlook. This is an educational, this piece, this understanding that we can't know everything and the nature of carrying uncertainty with us is a key to people who value 
who value knowledge and understand, because of Ehrlich stresses that, that the knowledge motivates us to do. And so that we don't remain just simply self-satisfied because we're at the point where we've already made the goal itself. So Ehrlich continues, but one who is right, so too it is with regard to knowledge of God in God's ways. For if a human being attains the highest level above which there is none, what will he or she do afterwards? Therefore, no human can see God's face, and God reveals only God's back to the devout in order that they continually search and probe, drawing inferences with regard to God's face from observing God's back and toiling all their life to know God in the most complete and clear manner. Their toil is their reward. I mean, it, it, it's a one, this is a wonderful piece. I, I would recommend people who are, who are interested and concerned, you know, carry this piece with you and, 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 and share it and share it with others. Right. So, so what, what, what can we, what, what can we per, um, per, uh, perceive? We can't perceive God's face. That is, we can't know the truth in with a capital T. We can only see God's back. That's the only thing we have is an approximation of truth. Like that's a hard one to carry, to know. And by the way, it opens up the possibility that if we can't know the whole truth, then maybe someone else has a share of the truth, since we don't have it all. Maybe another religious tradition has a truth that actually can be beneficial to me, because I don't have it all. I only see the back. I don't see the front. Someone else is looking from another angle and sees it a little bit differently. So this is where we're headed in our discussion. So what I want to say is that, um, let me see what time it is. Uh, okay. um, I, I, I must apologize a bit. If I, I, I want to give me a second because I don't see everybody. Um, uh, does anybody, is there any question at this point? Yeah, I, I can take a couple of questions at this point. Alex, are there any questions? Um, I don't see any questions. Yeah, yeah I, I see a hand up from our friend, uh, Jenny Keller. Hi, Jenny. Thank you. Um, now, let me get back to Rabbi, uh, the other Rabbi. Uh, Rabbi, um, Feller, Rabbi Feller. It's Jenny Keller from uh, Phoenix, Temple High in Phoenix. And uh, you and I have, I have had the honor of studying with you many, many years at the Shalom Hartman Institute. And you just hit on something that I think about. I, and, and because um, Rev Shmuley has this, has this wonderful program of learning, I'm so drawn to it. I, I think that my rest comes in between the learnings, and um, uh, and yet I'm always wanting to learn more. And then I sit back and I think, well, what do I want to learn? What is it to learn? It's the learning of my of myself. It, and if if what I learn about myself is a reflection of what God is, I think that is really what you have described today that has been so moving thus far. It's, it's, it's amazing. So I learn, I think about it, I try and put it into action, and I and I and I, and then I and then I come back and I want to learn some more. It's a very it may sound very pediatric, but um but uh -huh. it just, just hit on something that was wonderful for me. 
so 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 what you, you what you've done is you've translated this into sort of a dynamic relationship that the learning right. there's a dynamism to it it's, it's uh, the one thing that we have to be careful all the time is um uh, not not to um re retreat into oneself i mean which which i think what you're saying you don't but that's something that you that one you see that would be the critique uh, about, about the intellectual tradition because the person's all involved in themselves and their thinking and how would uh, how smart they are, uh, and the spiritual tradition, which is sometimes an escape for some people. So we want to maintain, I mean, let me let me uh, say to you something that I don't think many people focus on. In the 16th century, in Svat, there was a flourishing of, of, of mystical activity. There was the single largest gathering of Jewish scholars in history in, in Svat. And many of them, or maybe most of them, were uh, Spanish Exiles. They thought of themselves living in Svat in exile, right? Because they had to leave. Their families had to leave. Among them, Joseph Caro, the author of the, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, uh, uh, and of course the Ari, the Ari Hakadosh, and, and Moses Cordovero. Those are some names that you might recognize. Alkabetz, Shlomo Alkabetz, the author of Lachadodi, Cordovero's brother-in-law. Right? They were all there. Now, what's so interesting is that community not only produced the most significant sort of mystical reflections and the most complicated, I would say, the most, in some ways the more the most advanced mystical uh, um, uh, treatises in, in Jewish tradition. But many of the great rabbinic sages inside of that time wrote ethical works like Mesilat Yisharim that came later in, in Italy, but that's an example that people will know. Reshet Chochma by, by Davidus, that it, it must, most of Many of you won't be familiar with this, but Cordovero himself, Cordovero himself wrote uh, a, 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 an ethical treatise, and um, and and which which is extremely popular uh, that people study. So that what they were trying to do is to link their spiritual reflection with a life of action and the sense of responsibility to the other. And it's impossible in the, in in this world. That was that was written about and achieved to simply retreat into oneself. That's what that I think that's really important. Now, when we talk about, I mean, what what we can take away from Ehrlich and from this uh, conversation uh, is that we the first the first principle, and the first principle is we don't know God. Now, let me add to that something about our conversation about God that I didn't say earlier that maybe should have been articulated. What makes God language and God so difficult? Jewish history makes God very difficult. Right? God supposedly is caring for the Jewish people. And the Jewish people have suffered through Jewish history, most notably in the Holocaust. So there are many people who see that as the end of God. Now, I, 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 that's, not, that's not how I look at it, but I, I need to acknowledge that. And I need to also say that in our conversation and in the way Ginny formulated it, we're no longer talking about the traditional God of history and the God who intervenes through, um, through uh, you know, supernatural and supernatural ways. We're talking about a God that we discover in our inner selves. And we're talking about a God that binds human beings one to another because we're each a part of the divine. We have an element of divinity within us. It's a much more Eastern notion of God than a Western notion that there's a being called God that we... Uh, now, and, and I know that when you study Torah, you see that being intervene, 
intervening. And so what one might think that my suggestion that we're not no longer talking about it, the God of history, which you know, theologically rejects the notion of providence, at least the classical idea of providence that would see this as a departure from Judaism, I must tell you that this is exactly the way the Hasidic rabbis talked about God. Now they never they never denied the God of history. They just didn't talk about the God of history. They were talking about the inner dimension of divinity and the God that exists in the community and the God that binds them. And so they, so I think that's what, that's where we need, at least where I need to go to leave behind the classical understanding and develop an understanding that we can carry with us into the future and that motivates us and that motivates us to, in, in, to, in, with a sense that we need always to be pursuing uh, more. Uh, and more good to better ourselves and the world around us because we're never really there. Right. So the first, the first principle that I, I, I want to sort of establish, and perhaps we can use the classical language that reflects the notion of God as presented in the Torah with the name Elohim, who's sort of the judge, that, who's, a, who's beyond. That God, uh, that notion of God means we are not God. If, if I can, just an, another sort of very short an aphorism. Right? The central teaching of the Ten Commandments, in fact, maybe the first commandment, because the first line is, I am, is, a, is, a, is a statement. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, do not make an idol, which I translate, do not make yourself into an idol. So why, why God? God is the guarantor that we don't make ourselves into gods. It's so, in other words, religion is about the development of character. Humility. Now, and if you look around at leaders in the world, or you look at the history of the world, and kings who rule by divine right, and, uh, and, and the empires that establish themselves as divine kingdoms in the name of God, and rulers who felt empowered to do anything they could because they had godlike attributes, we understand the danger of a society where there's no limit placed to human beings. Ehrlich starts us out by teaching us that we cannot know it all. And I'm suggesting that the first principle of the notion of God is to know that no human is God. It sounds so simple, but so essential. We even have had American presidents, without mentioning any names, who thought of themselves as invincible and infallible, or who think of themselves in that way. And it's natural, because people who, are, people who pursue power fill themselves up with this sense of their greatness. And, and I remember a column that, that uh, David Brooks wrote in which he, he talked, he promoted the notion that it would really be beneficial and healthy and healing in the world if, if, if leaders would have a sense of humility and how, how impressive it is to meet a leader, a world leader who brings with them, who, who, who brings with them a sense of their humanity. In fact, if you look in the Rambam, look at Maimonides and how he presents the notion of the king in, in the Torah and how he understands it, that's exactly what Maimonides says. The king has to be someone whose concern is for the people and not for himself. Right? He has to come out and he has to express 
that sense of concern. Now, that's why, my, I mean, you know, I know that uh, often uh, that people are rebellious in, in, in prayer because prayers are, and especially the Psalms, are filled with praise of God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So I always say, why do we need to say hallelujah so much? And now it's Hanukkah, so we're saying the Hallel every day. We don't say hallelujah because God needs it. God doesn't need our praise. We need to say hallelujah to know that we're not praising ourselves and to understand how to present ourselves. It doesn't mean we have to be, in other words, the extreme that's presented is self-abnegation. But the goal, the, 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 we're not, we, don't, we don't need to uh, embrace self-abnegation. What we need to know is we're not it. We're not it. And, 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 open, and make room. Because when you know that you're not it, you make room for others. When you think that you're it, then you're, you're, you know, then nobody else can approach you. Right? So God is, in, so religion, God, the notion of God is a guarantor of our uh, humility and character. Once we know that we're not God and we recognize the Elohim beyond us, then we have the capacity, the potential capacity to realize the divinity that's within us. That's really important. Because if all we have is the notion that there's a divinity within us, then indeed we can set ourselves up as God. So we have to carry with us sense we are not God, but we have the potential because we're created in God's image to develop that godliness in the way in which uh, and, and, and in the way in which we relate to others. This this is the secret in a way of the name of the name Yud Hey Vav Hey Yud Hey Vav Hey right is uh, perhaps. Although there's some other scholarly opinions about the source of the name, but the popular understanding is it's a contraction of Hayahoveyeh. It's as if Hayahoveyeh is meaning an eternal presence. So that the notion of God, this is this is about presence. This is about connection. This is about relationship. This is about bringing 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 godliness uh, into the world and making making God present through our activity, translating God into action. One of the sources, because we're not going to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to go through uh, all the sources, but one of the sources that I bring, actually, let, let me let me move to it at this point and, and just show it to you so you can see it uh, here. Let's look at this passage in the, in the Talmud. Okay. Vayavor Hashem al-Panav. So in the same passage in, uh, in Exodus, um, where Moses asked God to reveal himself or to tell uh, uh, his name uh, or to reveal his name. Um, uh, it says, you can only see my back. And then it says, God passed before him when Moses was in the cleft of the rock. Amar Rabbi Yochanan. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Rabbi Yochanan said, were it not written in the text, it would be impossible for us to say such a thing. Which What's the thing? This verse teaches us that the Holy One, blessed be he, drew his robe round him like the reader of a congregation, like a chazan, right? And showed Moses the order of prayer. He said to him, whenever Israel sin, let them carry out this service before me and I will forgive them. What does this mean? On Yom Kippur, think about this. What do we do on Yom Kippur? We say the 13 attributes, Adonai, Adonai, El Rachum, Mechanun, Erech HaPayim, Chesed, That's what God revealed to Moses that God is compassionate, that God cares. And by the way, that, that line that we repeat, it, it, the, the real ending, we end with vinake, 
right? Which means that he cleanses and forgives. But the text in the Torah says, Vinake lo that he doesn't forgive everything. The rabbis purposely cut the verse in order to promote the positive attributes of the divine, not for God's sake, for our sake, that we should understand that we have to aspire to reach and to fulfill these 13 attributes. What does the Talmud mean here? The Talmud doesn't mean that if it, that God taught Moses that if Israel sins, all they need to do is to recite the 13 attributes again and again and again, and then they get forgiveness. No, we recite it again and again and again in order to internalize it so that we act on the 13 attributes. What are the 13 attributes of God all about? It's not about God, it's about what we need to do. We need to have compassion. We need to have patience. We need to have forgiveness, right? And those are things that are so hard to achieve their life. This is, this is teshuva in the, in a, as a lifelong enterprise. You don't get there. That's what we don't understand. Um, and, and the notion of Baal Shuvah, the master of Shuvah, is a ridiculous idea because no one can be the master of Shuvah. Everybody is pursuing the Shuvah because it's, a, it's, what, it's the goal of life to return. And, and as Ginny said earlier, it's a, it, it, it's a dual return. It's a return to godliness and it's a return to ourselves. Right? Kind of thing. Because in the process, we reveal, we reveal ourselves. So by uh, by understanding the God of limitation, right, which is Elohim, we then can move on to achieve this, what I call the God of aspiration. The, uh, the, 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 the God that teaches us that we have to try to acquire and, 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 and better the world. Right, I still have a few minutes, so let me, let me, let me, let me share with you a couple, a couple of things. Number one, the secret uh, uh, prayer that I learned from David Hartman. Um, and it's related to the second dimension. We were once sitting at a retreat um, uh, and um, Hartman proclaimed, it's time to recite the, the grace after meal. It's time to bench, right? After the Shabbos meal to recite the grace. People started sing singing. He said, stop, stop. And he said, what are you saying? Uh, what's, the final, what's the final line of the first blessing in the grace after meals? Many of you know that. Hazanet HaKol who feeds everyone. Someone, so someone gave the answer and Hartman yelled at him, you're a liar. Why is he a liar? Because God doesn't feed everybody. There's lots of hunger in the world. So what could it mean? Right? Ginny got it, right? What, what could it mean? It means that when we describe God as the feeder of all, it's, we don't intend it only as a description of God. We intend it as an imperative directed at us. It's, the food is here. It's our responsibility to make sure that all people have food. That's how I approach the Amida. The daily Amida is a laundry list. It's an agenda of what the rabbis constructed as those goals that we should have in life. Healing, justice, uh, redemption, um, uh, um, uh, forgiveness. I mean, look at, look at these values. There one, I mean, there's more, obviously. And the rabbis understood that there would be more, but but uh, peace—it's it, an it's a—it's an agenda that's enough for many lives. So we have to be careful in what we choose and to be focused and try uh, in our lives when we when we when we when we pray in the morning to, to concentrate on what are we going to try to achieve? How are we going to try to make the world different today? What goal do we have? What are, what among these items do we want to pursue? It's a way of reminding us of who we are and what our sense of responsibility is. So that's one thing about prayer that I think is important. Secondly, I learned this from a friend of mine, this notion. 
he was he was a, a colleague of mine in San Diego who uh, had a terminal cancer. He survived, thank God. He's he's still he's still writing and alive. And um, when he was sick in the hospital, his five year old child approached him and said, "Abba, Abba, where is God?" So my friend had the presence of mind to say the following. He said, you see that young man who comes every week with a guitar to play for the children in the pediatric cancer ward? Because you know all those people in the congregation who are helping out in the house while I'm gone because I'm in the hospital and helping you with your homework and helping your mother, right? You know the scientists at Scripps who are working on a cure for my cancer. And he went on and on. And he, but he taught his son, it's magic. He taught his son. God is in the works of the people who are trying to bring healing into the world and which, who are making the relationship. Here, take a look, my friends. Uh, first of all, look at the drawing on the page. This is, what is this? This is the Tetragrammaton, yud heh vav -Hey. But what is it? It's the figure of a human being. This is how a human being has to, has to sort of drive themselves to embody God so that the radiance so God, as if so, God radiates from them. Remember Moses. Moses comes down a mountain with a radiating face, and that's that's also an important lesson. Moses encountered the divine, but the purpose of encountering the divine was to come back to earth and not to live with the divine. I mean, that's that's so important here, right? In other words, the goal is not to be there, and Judaism is earthly bound rather than heavenly bound. And that's a distinctive dimension of how Jews choose to seek godly, God in the world, not by achieving unification with the divine, although some mystics attempt that, but even if they achieve that sense of unification, it's only for the purpose of then coming back and translating it into, in, in, into the world and into our behavior. Take a look at one more source, which I'll show you, which is so uh, sort of uh, striking, uh, almost heretical. Uh, in, in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah declares, you are my witnesses, said the Lord, and I am God, right? When you are my witnesses, I am God. Wow. But when you are not my witnesses, I am not God, if one may say such a thing. I mean, it's amazing, right? What, what, are, the, what are the rabbis saying? You need to be my agents. You are my representatives. When you are not carrying the image into the world, people don't know me. So it's your fault that people aren't talking about God because you don't carry that sense of, of understanding and commitment and responsibility and, and translate. It doesn't mean, by the way, that you have to stand on the street corners and proclaim God. You have to act in a way that, 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 that sanctifies, that people look at you and they say, that's a person that I would like to emulate. Now that, by the way, that's true about observance. Observance is not about showing off, right? It's about... It's about leading, um, it's about modeling in terms of how we live and not claiming to be, to be uh, too important. Now, one more text that I want, I, I won't be able to read it, but I want to tell you what it is. And it's, the, it's also the reason that I named the, the, the session The God of Possibilities. I came across a Hasidic text when I was looking to see the meaning of the encounter between Moses and God. And this is earlier on in Exodus. In the, um, and, 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 and Moses, uh, uh, and Moses asked God, actually, no, it's a, I'm sorry, it's, a, it's around the same character, I'm sorry. And Moses asked God for, um, to tell him uh, his name, right? So what does God answer to Moses? And usually that's translated, I am that I am, 
but the translation that's offered here and in the, I think it's in the JPS, if I'm not mistaken, is I will be what I will be. And that means that God is always growing. God is not fixed, at least the God that we're talking about. If for those who are classical believers, so there is the God that we can't touch, whom we don't know. But the God whom we can touch in our lives, that is the God that we can manifest in our lives, that God is not fixed because human beings are always adding to that God. That was the message, in fact, the Hasidic Rebbe says, what kind of an answer did God give to Moses? Moses said, take some slaves out of Egypt. Moses says, they're going to ask me who sent me. And God tells him, tell him that, hey, Yasher, hey, yes, sent you. Uh, right? I will be sent. What does that mean? It means you were in Egypt. In Egypt, there was someone who thought he was God. In fact, he was the only one who knew God. Right? His name is Pharaoh. That's idolatry. Self-worship. Right? Look what he did in the name of himself, in the name of the idol called Pharaoh. How he persecuted, how he abused, how he led to the destruction of his own country. How leaders of countries today think of themselves as so mighty and are willing to sacrifice people's lives for their own ego. And look at that. Look at that. So, so God says, that was where you were. The, what I'm offering you is freedom, liberty, and growth. Because I'm not yet. Uh, yeah, sure, yeah, that's how I translate it. That's what the Hasid, so the Hasidic Rebbe says the following. That he goes through, because uh, in, in the answer to, to Moses, God says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So he asked the classical question, how come uh, God had to repeat the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and not say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And say, why say God three times, the God of? Because each one of them had a different relationship with God. Each one of them carried the sense of God that they learned from their parent, but that's not sufficient. What the Reb, Hasidic Rebbe says, you can't rest on your laurels. No complacency, no claim that you know it. You don't know it. And you need to nurture the sense within yourself, that attribute within yourself that reflects that distinctive quality that's another dimension of God. And those dimensions are infinite, right? So this becomes then a sense of, of growth. What my friend who writes of theology and philosophy calls what we developed in this process is a sense of epistemic modesty because we know that we don't know yet and that we're still learning because other people, there are different ways of looking. We don't have it all. It's wonderful. It opens up, even though I'm sure the Hasidic Rebbe who wrote this would not agree with me, but nevertheless, what he promotes is a sense of pluralism. We need to hear other ideas because those ideas help add to the dimension and the rev and the rev and revealing more and more godliness in, in, in the world. Uh, I, 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 I know that I've exceeded my time in presentation. I want to preserve some time for questions, but I want to share one final word with you. Uh, and that's a quote from Heschel. Heschel wrote and, uh, and said the following. And this is quoted in a work by Arthur Green called Ehyeh. From Heschel, I learned what it means to live as the image of God. His most important teaching to me, one that stays with me every day, concerns the second of the Ten Commandments. Why are we forbidden to make images of God, Heschel asked. It is not because God is beyond all images, so that no image could possibly depict God. If that were the case, uh, Heschel argued, images would merely be harmless. Right? Because there are no images of God. So that's ridiculous. But God has an image. 
It's not that God doesn't have an image. God has an image, Heschel insisted, and that is you. You may not make the image of God in a thing because you are the image of God. Don't make anything. Don't give anything ultimate value. Not money, not yourself, not your possessions, not some other person that you worship. Remain, I, I would even say the following. This is Chaim talking, not Heschel. Be skeptical about power. Develop a sense that humans are only human and that you don't owe your obeisance to any one human being or to any one government, for example. For example. I'm, not, I'm not trying to promote rebellion. I just a sense of that there always needs to be the openness to change, to difference, to growth. Right? And to keep that avenue, that door, needs to be kept open all the time. The only medium in which you can make God's image is the medium of your entire life. And that is precisely what we are commanded to do. Everything you do, everything you say, each moment and the way you use uh, and, you, um, and, and the way you use are all part of the way you build God's image. To take anything less than a full living human being, like a canvas or a piece of marble, and call it the image of God would be to diminish God and to lessen God's image. Thank you. And let's take a few questions. We still have some time. Okay. I, I, I'm going to Stop sharing my screen. Okay, and now I'll see more people. Here we are. Hello, everybody. So any questions, please? Yeah, I see Aglaia has her hand up. Okay. Okay. Oh, and I like I was not muted. Okay, that's really kind of weird. Okay. I'm just gonna say really quickly because I you know don't want to take up too much time for other people's questions or anything though. But um what you just described here was actually in my case the only reason why I was able to you know, start believing in God. Like I, and it was basically, I needed to have that uncertainty or else, you know, the traditional, you know, histories, God, like you were saying, the God of history was kind of bothering me a lot though, but that, um, you know, that ever dynamic. And so I kind of look at it from the perspective of um, uh, the, just the quick, fast way to say it. Um, uh, maybe it's also like, um, there's also this, idea of like the rejection of God is also a rejection of just all the bad things religion has done and people have conflated. I don't like things that religion has done. And so I've conflated it with God is bad. So, so, right, so let, me, let me say this. Mm -hmm. what, what, what usually what some of us who, 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 who try to talk about this, about God and about religion in general. So what we say to people is that I, we want you to know that we certainly, but by the way, even the rabbis 2000 years ago, didn't believe in the God that you think you, you were taught. That that God is not the God that, that, that you know, serious religionists imagined. That's some, I, I don't, you know, it's the popular mind, the old man with a beard who, in, in heaven, who sort of has a book and controls everybody. In fact, Sometimes the tradition leads us in this direction on Yom Kippur, if we think that God is sitting there with a ledger and checking off life to this one, death to that one. I mean, and not realize that we're the ones who are writing the book, not God. I mean, in other words, and, and, and learn how to translate the language. The language itself is sometimes an obstacle because the language presents a very, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, crude in some ways, sometimes crude portrait of what, what what the uh, what the divine is engaged in, is engaged in, um, and and I think we we need to be able to open up those teachings in such a way that we realize that it's not describing a, a being called God. 
but actually actually talking to us about what we how we need to to make uh, to make improvement in ourselves and in the world around us. Any other questions, please? Thank you. Hi, comments. Erwin. I see Erwin's got his hand up. Okay. Um, thank you. That, that was an inspiring and lovely talk. And it's, it's always been my favorite part of the Torah. Um, the part that you talk about here. Um, but there's one, there's an additional thing that is said in there that God says, I'll, I, uh, I will make all my glory, all my goodness pass before you. Uh, and I've always felt that that is um, such an optimistic statement about the world that God created, that it's a good world. Um, and um, if you, everything you said fits in with being part of, partaking in, doing our role as human beings uh, in a world that can be beautiful. Yeah. So the glory, so, so, so God's glory is this, uh, this character of God that we need to, to adopt to, I mean, I think that, that I, I like what you say that it's about a good world. It's not, uh, that's absolutely, I think you're right in, in reading it that way, which, because after all, the creation, every day ends except one day, Kitov, right? That it was good. And on Friday, it was very good, Tov Ma'od, right? So that, that, that becomes a challenge to us to, 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 to hold on to this because we know there's a lot of evil in the world. There is a lot of evil in the world. So if we carry the glory of God, that means the, the so-called sanctification of God is, is, in, is undermining, well, undermining that evil through good, through good, right? and, 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 and creating good and making goodness into a value that people pursue. Right? And see that as, a, as, as something worthwhile, uh, not only success. I mean, I, I, I don't think that we stress that enough in terms of how we educate ourselves to understand what we need to do. Because if, even though you're right that God gave this goodness in creation, it's not going to be that way unless we make it that way. We need to hold on to that. And, and, to, and, that's, and some people, some people, unfortunately, right, fall apart in this world because they're overcome by the impossibility of, 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 of actually denting the wall of hate or evil that surrounds them. And we, so, so that's, that's, that's a burden that people carry that needs to be somehow alleviated. It's not so easy, not so easy for many people. They, there's a shadow that's with them. Right? How do they, and that shadow over, overwhelms them so they see darkness rather than light. And, and how, how, how do we, so we have, to, we have to make sure to help people and show them models of goodness and reaching out and reaching beyond ourselves. That has an impact. That can have an impact. There was, was there another question? Yes, Audrey, please, Audrey. Yes, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Um, I was moved by the name of God. I am what I am. And that it can be, or also is, or can become, I will be what I will be. And I wondered if I wrote down, as you said that, Rep. I am God is not fixed, since God grows by what we do on earth. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so first of all, in terms of the Hebrew, the Hebrew, yeah, in other words, to me, although it, 
because of biblical Hebrew, and I'm not a, I'm not, a, you know, efficient in biblical grammar, but um, the, because of the problem with with the, with the tenses in biblical Hebrew, but certainly it's legitimate. Not only legitimate, it seems to be, at least to me, the primary meaning that it's a futuristic uh, a verb. Eh, hey, yeah, I will be. Right? And I also, I, I think, I think that that marks a difference. It's certainly an, a, a, a difference in exegetical approach between Christianity and Judaism, because I, I looked in the Christian Bible translations, and there you see, I am that I am. God is, and there is, and, and we know God, right? And actually, I would say Christianity is heavenly oriented. There's other oriented, right? That's, and that's the dilemma of those who don't know God, for sure. The dilemma of those who don't know God for sure don't have the certainty, right? Just come with me and you'll be healed and you'll achieve eternity. We, we don't, pro- I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I actually feel guilty. I can't tell Jews, be Jewish and then that's all and, 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 and you'll, you know, all your problems will be solved and uh, you, you, you'll, you'll get all the rewards because you, because you believe. Uh, we don't, we don't, we, we actually don't promise eternity. We, look what, look what Ehrlich said. We promise a life of toil. So I think people have to be prepared for this be, and, and recognize, as we heard before, is that Erwin, I, I assume it's Erwin, that's the name here, who said, who told, who told, who told us, that in pursuing more, we bring glory. That's where the glory is. In other words, the reward is in the toil, as as Ehrlich, as Ehrlich presents it. Um, so, and this idea that we, I mean, it, it's a rather it's a bold idea that we basically create God, right? We make godly, through our godliness, we increase the presence of God in the world. I always think God created the world for this opportunity. You know, God- Correct. Correct. So that's why I will I I will be what I will be based on what you guys do, you know. And excellent, excellent. So so the the uh, my last word. I know that we've reached time. Uh, that uh, you know, if it's possible, I I encourage people if they're interested, look into some of the Hasidic writing. Arthur Green just translated a major volume. It's published by Stanford University Press. It's called the Maore Nayim, the Light of the Eyes. It's the work of the Hasidic Rabbi of Chernobyl. He was in the third generation. He was he he received direct teachings through the Maggid of Mezrich from the Baal Shem Tov, and he if I, I, I actually a, a green green you should know gives some now some public classes, um, and um, and. Uh, he's he's finishing up now a series where he's teaching uh, weekly. He's going to start up again in uh, in the spring. Uh, he's no longer he's retired from the uh, Hebrew College, so he has he has this he has time and he he's teaching people and the public. And uh, I'm, I I actually participate there in one class. There were a hundred people. This class there were about sixty people. But it's open to the public, and it opens up this type of literature because you do need a key to reading the Hasidic literature. Um, and you, need, you need to have sort of the, the basic language 
in order to sort of get that, in order to get through those texts. But it's extremely worthwhile. There's a little book that he published many years ago uh, called "Your Word Is Fire." They're Hasidic aphorisms about on prayer, and it's a, it's marvelous with little, with little commentary. So so I can I can I can refer. I can give you some more suggestions. But um, I think that you know uh, th- this. There's more to be said on this issue, and more. And there are people who teach like this, and what's so and and what's so rewarding, and what I what I really appreciate is that the teachers of spirituality in Judaism are also the doers of social justice, right? That they they've made that translation, and they're not in, and they're not inviting you into a world of separation. They were inviting you into a world of engagement. And, re, and, and that to me, one of the redemptive features of Hasidism, which, had a, which has a lot of problems in terms of the Rebbe and, and, and how the Rebbe is almost, is lionized and I would say almost deified, right? I mean, there's a, it's a real problem. But that Rebbe is the, is the, is the anchor who, who, who actually brings the community together. That's where his, that's the focus. The person, if he is a, a Hasidic Rebbe who's, who's actually attempting to achieve his uh, fulfillment, the fulfillment is gained by, bring, by being the conscience and the caring and the one who cares for his community so that the community understands that they're all bound together through him. That's the spiritual connection that's being made. So it's not right. So that that's very important, and we we desperately need more opportunities for community. Sometimes community can be achieved through learning. Sometimes community can be achieved through being involved in in, a, in social justice projects. And how wonderful it is if my community of learning is also my community of action. And that's 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 what I think some people have tried to achieve, um, and we should we should be we should encourage that. Right, thank you very much. I hope to see you again and uh, happy Hanukkah. And remember, I mean, I'm sure you've heard a lot about the light, the light of Hanukkah, all right? But, but see something re- which is really striking. Why did the rabbis develop this notion or this story about the, or the oil? Right? It was a conscious decision that they made to de-emphasize the military, the, uh, the, 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 the military victory and to place the emphasis on the spiritual. Right? And, and we see, and, and you know, what do we do? We do the opposite. We march, we are the Maccabees, you know? And, and, and if you read some modern Israeli poetry about you know, fighting against and so on, so you see that we took, we took the wrong lesson. You know, this is what I'm saying. You know, the rabbis get mistreated and people, people think, think of religion in one way and, and look at what's going on consciously. The rabbis did this consciously. They under, underplayed what, what do you think, Reb Chaim, though, of, of extending it to Zelensky? Like, do you think the underdog being pushed by Putin is that a good mil, mil, militaristic connection? So, oh, so, so, but uh, I would say, if you must engage in in a military right pursuit, then you need to know that the goal is not victory; the goal is peace, or as Zelensky says, the goal is democracy. In other words, it's it's values driven. It's not about me. I'm, what value is there to beat up someone? All you do is promote more resentment. Right. And, and uh, now there are some enemies that you have to, in this world that have to be beat up, beaten up. I mean, it's a real, it's, it, uh, unfortunately, 
because of because of their because at least their presentation is an e- is is so evil and their 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 um, their ultimate goals are such. So I I you know I'm, it's unfortunate, and I don't and as much as I've talked about you know the idea of self limitation on one hand and and uh, and then uh, self affirmation on the other hand uh, in the notion of God we need to really be careful um, and and understand. That, that despite our uh, disgust with military activity, there is sometimes the necessity, certainly to defend oneself, to defend oneself as, as, as a, as a, I'm, I'm not a pacifist in that, in that regard, even though I want to read the sources as promoting the value, all right, that value of, of inner peace and communal, and communal uh, union. Okay, enough, enough. But but Hanukkah, Hanukkah is a great lesson. And I would also, if you look, well, more, one more thing I want to share with you. If you look at Maimonides in the Mishnah Torah, okay, it's interesting. He, des- he, he decides to conclude his whole presentation about Hanukkah with Gadol HaShalom, greatest peace. See, the, the last paragraph, as he sums up the story of Hanukkah and tells you what Hanukkah is all about, Right? He ends with the fact that the Torah is all about peace. Why is he doing that? Because he knew how to read the Gemara right. He understood that the Gemara was, was, was teaching us, and by the way, something else that we need to know. Maybe it was a mistake, not maybe, it was a mistake to rebel against the Romans. Who in their right mind rebels against, rebels against the Romans? Now, Hanukkah that was, in, you know, when the temple was destroyed. They succeeded in Hanukkah, okay? Every once in a while, the rebellion succeeds. But don't count on it. That's what happened. They concluded, ah, we beat up the, we beat up the Greeks. Now we'll get the Romans. And, and, and the, we, we beat up the Greeks because the Greeks were themselves in disarray. They were in disarray. And they couldn't bring the forces that could deal with a, a, rebel, uh, a rebel group. Who actually fought against? They fought against some elephants, I think. You know, and they were they were they were in a conflict within within the Greek camp. Right? So we we were fortunate. But the rabbis say, don't don't celebrate, don't make your focus on the fortunate achievement of the victim. Understand that eternity is achieved through light, not through might. Okay, Chanukah Sameach Take care, all of you. We'll see we'll see you again soon. Shalom, shalom. Rav Chaim, thank you so much for for joining us today and for leading us in our learning. Um, And thank you all for being here as well. I just want to let you know about our next program coming up um, next Thursday on December 29th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. We'll be hearing from Dr. Malka Simkovich on letters from Hanukkah's and Purim's past, the establishment of minor holidays, and Judea diaspora relations. So hope you can join us for that. Happy Hanukkah, everyone, and thanks again for being here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.